Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company. For a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, you can pick an experienced, licensed therapist you relate to and feel comfortable with. Each and every therapist has at least a master's degree and has completed over 3,000 hours of supervised work. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com forward slash boom. And to show your support for this podcast, use code boom to get $30 off your first month. That's boom. Talkspace.com slash boom. B-O-O-M. Welcome to the Heat Check. I'm Wes Goldberg. With me as always, it's David Ramil. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. How's it going with you? Very, very good, because we have a very special guest, CBS Sports' own Zach Harper. How you doing, Zach? Thanks for coming on. I'm excellent. I'm ready for some basketball. So, from what we understand, you are in Miami and have been attending training camp and preseason. Um, initial takeaways just from the camp and the first game of the preseason. Uh, I went in to training camp feeling pretty good about this team, just because you know they've had a they've had a pretty good year considering they you know lost LeBron last summer, and uh, I like the moves they made. I love the Dragic trade. Um, it was unfortunate that you know he didn't get to play with Bosch last season, but you look at that starting five; they added some depth on on the bench. And I went in thinking like, all right, this could be the second best team in the East. And then their comments on on media day, I was kind of like, oh, maybe I should temper my expectations a little bit because. Uh, you know, they're talking about how they want to play with pace, but that didn't mean they were going to necessarily be a running team that got fast break points. They were talking about how they had to get creative with three-point shooting, but you didn't want to leave their players open. Like, it was just a lot of this kind of hedging that you, I mean, everyone goes into media day just like, oh, yeah, we're great. We're going to be great. We're like, we're going to win the title. You know, all this stuff. We want to make the playoffs and all this stuff. And um, and it just, you didn't get that vibe from them. So then I was like, all right, I don't know about this. Um, I still think they're a good team. I still think they're a playoff team. Uh, but I wanted to, you know, kind of not get too deep into this, like, all right, the heater back kind of thing. And then after a couple of days of training camp, after the preseason game, I feel much better again. I'm like on this roller coaster of trying to figure out if the, you know, like, just how good the Heat are. Um, while they, you know, they didn't win the preseason game, um, I like the way some of the bench looked. I like Josh McRoberts' role. We didn't see Hassan Whiteside yet, but uh, you know, I think you can feel pretty good about him fitting in for the most part. And I just I don't know, you watch Goran Dragic and Chris Bosch run a pick and pop against an NBA team and a pretty good defense, even though they're missing some guys, a good defensive system, and you see it work, and you're like, all right, I can, I can get on board with this. How much of that, you know, maybe hedging a little bit is like kind of systemic or as far as like the whole heat culture kind of thing? You know, maybe like Riley's kind of overlooking Spolster and kind of telling the team, you know, kind of curb your enthusiasm a little bit, or, or is that just because maybe they're not sure exactly how they'll develop over the course of the season? Yeah, I think that I think it's a really good question because I think that um, you know they went into last year and it was you know some hurt feelings because of what had happened that summer and it was a lot of like beating your chest and oh we're going to be as competitive as ever and then you go out there and they just weren't a deep team they couldn't withstand the injuries and uh, and they were big in, you know Dwayne Wade missed quite a bit of time Chris Bosh missing the entire uh, post All Star break stretch um, you know guys are banged up here and there McRoberts got hurt early uh, you know. Now, they just didn't have the ability to withstand that. And so I think, you know, they learned a little bit from that. They got over the LeBron thing over the past year. They put a, a team together that, you know, has some holes but still looks uh, pretty deep and pretty good, especially considering the confidence they're playing in. And I think it was a lot of, like, you know, a lot more maturity. You know, not saying they were immature last summer or last, you know, beginning of last season, but I think it was they they learned to just be a little bit calmer about the situation because they've had a year removed and, 
and they can see, all right, it didn't work last year, it didn't work for these reasons. Well, let's try to go into it with this approach and this, you know, these expectations and see where it takes us. And I just think, um, you know, maybe part of that was playing down how good they're actually going to be. I think you can look at the system and look at um, a lot of the weapons and just think like, all right, this team, there could be nights where this team just obliterates the competition. And I think you can look at some of the stuff and, and say, all right, they may struggle in certain matchups. And I think it's them trying to figure out just where everything falls. My read on that uh, tempering expectations is even going back further to the start of the big three with the big smoke and fire show and the fireworks. Yeah. I mean, they they realize that that doesn't really help anything. So it's a very different team, but it's still Wade, it's still Bosch, still Spolstra, still Riley. Maybe they understand, like, there's not really a point in, in blowing up our own expectations. Let's just kind of be moderate and then just let our game speak for itself kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know... Uh... I don't know. It's weird for me. Like the three teams I've covered up close in my life are the Sacramento Kings around like the Tyreek Evans era. So not the most professional organization. <laughs> um, the Minnesota Timberwolves, while they were trying to figure out if they can make the playoffs with Kevin Love and Ricky Rubio and all that, um, which is a more professional organization, but still like very like into nepotism and you know not all that well run. And like half of that was David Kahn and then transitioned to Flip Saunders. So like that wasn't a great example. But then like I come and. And even without LeBron here, like, come and uh, cover this organization. And it's funny because they have, like, this stigma because of the, you know, the basically, like, turning their their celebratory, like, hey, we signed these guys into, like, a WWE event and, like, all that stuff. Like, you know, they have, like, those moments of, holy crap, look how cool we are. And, and yet you, like, see them on a day-to-day basis. And this is one of the most professional, like, professionally run NBA organization like they like everything is professional with the way they do it so I think like that's kind of this weird juxtaposition with them is they've they've gotten a, a little ahead of themselves at times with the way they celebrate things and then like but just from like a day-to-day standpoint it's like wow this team is just like this is how you would run a business like this makes sense to me right. so I think like there is kind of that mixture and, and that balance that they maybe had to re reconnect with. I don't want to rehash too much what happened back in 2010, but I mean, I guess I'm curious from a sort of outsider's perspective how you viewed that whole party and event. I know it was it was torn apart in the media, and everybody seemed to kind of hate it. And and throughout the course of the season, everybody really despised that team. But I mean, you have to understand that from the perspective of South Florida fans and Heat fans in general, I mean, they loved it. It was perfect for that city, and, and maybe you can attest to that having lived there for some time now. But I mean, it, it felt it felt perfectly Miamian in its excess, and and I think it was. I mean, I remember it fondly, and I think it was great, and it was just perfectly in line. And I know that you know you have people like Charles Barkley and other detractors saying, "Well, they haven't done anything yet," but that team was still very accomplished. They made it all the way to the finals mm-hmm. and everything else. But from an outsider's perspective, what what do you remember of that, and how did you feel about it at the time? If you don't mind my asking. Oh no, I don't mind at all. Uh, I mean, I'm I don't know. Like I'm someone who. Uh, I don't get offended easily. Like you, you could call yeah. me some horrible things. I just I don't get offended all that easily. So um, the idea that people will be offended by LeBron having a one-hour special to announce his decision, like that was and crazy the to me. Went to charity, by the way. That was a good right. Thing <laughs> exactly. Like it was a charitable thing. Like yeah, <laughs> but like we also year after year we have National Signing Day in college football, right? And mm-hmm. like eighteen-year-olds are picking, like elaborately picking what 
football cap to put on <laughs> to show like where they're going to school. So like, I don't know, I kind of saw the culture going that way, especially the sports culture. And so then for a professional to do it, like it just, like, I don't know, it seemed like the natural progression to me. Yeah. And those um, kids, those kids will sometimes take, like they'll fake out, they'll go for one hat and then fake it out. It's not like LeBron was like, I'm going to Cleveland. Just kidding. I'm going to Miami. Yeah, like I think Harrison Barnes did that when he picked North Carolina. Like yeah, I think he right. kind of hovered over like the Iowa cap and then like went to North Carolina. Like that's messed up for a for an eighteen year old to do, but or for anyone to do. But um, yeah, it's not like LeBron was like I'm going to Cleveland. Oh, just kidding, going to South Beach. Like that didn't happen. Um, I think living here, I understand like this. Just the not even the sports culture. I just understand the culture much better. Um, like the celebrations and stuff, it didn't bother me. Like you just signed you know, the best player in the world to go with Dwayne Wade and, and you brought in Chris Bosh in the process. Um, I'd celebrate too. Like, I don't know that I'd throw, I don't know that I'd have a laser show with like smoke machines and stuff. But, but only because you don't have that available to you. Otherwise, Exactly. I just don't have that in my closet. So. <laughs> I'm surprised I they don't do that, that every day. Right, exactly. Like, I, you know, you'd have like dry ice coming out and everything. But, um, but I don't know. Like, it didn't bother me at the time. I'd celebrate it too. Uh, and also, I don't mind things like that which put pressure on you which then force you to, you know, kind of up your game and prove that it was worth all that. And it didn't work the first year. And then the next two years after that, they, you know, kind of proved like, hey, you know, it, this was all worth it. Like, this was all legitimate. They, this did become the best team in the league and a historic team and um, back-to-back champs and all that stuff and uh, four straight finals appearances. And, you know, I think that they kind of proved that that was legitimate. And then, you know, just kind of understanding, I don't know, like there's always been this thing of, oh, Heat fans don't show up and, um like going to games, you, I, I, the first time I ever went to a Miami Heat home game was uh, the conference finals against the Pacers in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that environment to me, I was like blown away by how loud it was. Like right. it was like being in a nightclub, which was weird. <laughs> like it was very disorienting. Uh, it was, I don't know, like the fans were crazy and the fans were great. And so to me, like we'd had a, two years of the fans don't do this, the fans don't do that. And my first experience was of it was, oh, this is actually pretty cool. Right. Um, they, they show up and all that stuff. And uh, and you just learn more about the culture here, and it's like people are late to things. Like people don't aren't in place at, you know to be at an event at 7 o'clock. Like that's just not how um, the culture in Miami is. And if you go to those games, yeah, the lower bowl looks half, dem- half empty at times. The upper bowl is loud and packed every night. And it's because you price out certain fans by being that good and having that – kind of image or whatever so i don't know like that stuff never bothered me uh seeing it firsthand you just understand it better and um you know i i don't know like i don't get offended so the fact that they signed the best player in the world and then wanted to do cartwheels like yeah i did cartwheels too if i could (laughs) so um yeah i mean people don't understand that that's it's not that south florida south floridians don't care about being on time for heat games they don't care about being on time for anything it's a point to everything there's no rush hour here at like 8 a.m. and like 5 p.m. Like everything's everything's like an hour and a half backwards. So uh, like that's just something you get used to, I guess. Let's talk a little bit about this season as opposed to four years ago. But um, Josh McRoberts, uh, how many votes is he going to win six man of the year by? Ooh, that was something I had to like kind of like fan myself and get myself under control. Like watching him in person with that, that second unit the other night, uh, you just kind of forget like what a special passer he is. Like he's not the greatest passing big man in the league. He might not even be like top five, but he's a guy that is so good at it and he can stretch the floor and he can score if he wants to. He can kind of do whatever he wants and he's so important defensively. 
Um, if this team is good and if they're the second best team in the East consistently throughout the season, like I kind of think that, I mean, I don't know that he'll run away with it because you still got to see who goes where and who succeeds where and what the rotations are. Uh, I think he has as good a chance as anybody. Hmm. Um, and that's not just because I'm on a heat podcast right now. Like I really just think like he's so good if he's, if they're good and if he's healthy, um, you know, he could average, I don't know, like 11, 6, and 4 off the bench. Like something crazy. Like those are crazy numbers for a bench player, and I think he could do that. And if they're good, like that just gets you notoriety. I think people tend to forget how effective he was for that Charlotte Bobcats team a couple of years ago and that he was a big part of them making that playoff push. And, I mean, you look at last year's lineup and certainly – there's going to be some, some, you know, a, a lull or a hangover in the post-LeBron era where he's not necessarily going to fit that bill, you know, vacated by the best player on the planet. So people are going to resent him somewhat. And then the fact that he started off the season with a, a foot injury and then a, a blister, if I'm not mistaken, and then there was that knee surgery. I mean, there was just one thing after another. And, and I always go back to that one statistic that, that frightens the hell out of me, that the projected lineup for last year the projected starting lineup only played 34 minutes together or something ridiculous like that. I mean, you you tend to forget that this team was never quite healthy. And then you look at how McRoberts would have made a big difference on last year's team. I mean, I'm not saying he would have necessarily translated to a whole bunch of wins, but he certainly would have you know infused a little bit more energy in that second unit. And so seeing him play the way he has, that he's finally healthy again, I'm optimistic about his impact on the team, and I think he could be a leader for that second unit. Yeah, and you, and you look at like what he, you know, the few minutes he got on the court last year, he made a huge difference for them defensively, which you can kind of look at as, oh, it's a small sample size and it's just a, a little bit of noise, but that's how he was in Charlotte too. Like when he was, it, I mean, Steve Clifford had a defensive system in Charlotte where Al Jefferson and Josh McRoberts were the two bigs that played the most minutes. Those are not your typical like rim protector defensive guys, but they're, they got really smart with how they played, you know, team defense and cut off the lane. And they protected the rim without being rim protectors. And I think he's just he's just such a smart basketball player, and he sees things happening before um, before they really unfold. And he's able to anticipate. And because he's able to anticipate on both ends of the floor, he just has a huge impact. And um, you know, I actually thought he was going to get traded this offseason. Absolutely, because there were rumblings that you know he didn't come into camp in the best shape either in a conditioning standpoint or because of the injuries. And that didn't go over well, and it just, and then you know you have the up and downs of early parts of the season, and he's out for the year, and it was just kind of like a, you know, a question of did this guy come in? Was this guy committed to the team? Right. Um, and I don't know how real the question, like how severe the questioning was, but I think you know you hear from enough people like there were some questions with that, and I thought it meant he was just going to be gone. Right. And uh, and it's a good thing they didn't overreact to that, and it's a good thing they kind of let it play out because assuming he doesn't you know fall back into it an injury or something this season, he's going to be special for them. And he's probably uh, going to be a part of whatever their best lineup ends up being. I guarantee like he'll be, he'll be in that lineup. I, I heard some rumblings that he didn't quite embrace the, the whole heat culture, which I mean, it sounds a little ridiculous at times and I know it's a little cliche, but I guess the whole sense of professionalism, the fact that you live, eat and sleep basketball all the time and that maybe he kind of fits something outside of that. Maybe he had interests not necessarily limited to just basketball. So maybe he didn't, like they said, you know, they didn't, he didn't necessarily embrace uh, you know, basketball all the time, and so maybe he didn't quite fit in. Did you hear anything like that, or is that just kind of backing up what you had just said about, uh, you know, that maybe he was on the outside, kind of looking in? 
Yeah, I think that kind of fits in with with what I heard of in terms of just like outside looking in. Maybe you know you're trying to get your feet wet a little bit, but you don't want to you know jump in and and just say like, hey, this is my team, and I you know I, this right. is how we do things where I'm from and all this stuff. Like I think he was maybe a little too cautious, and that um, created a little bit of like wariness in terms of like does he really fit in? And and you know you, now you see, I mean, after the first couple of days of training camp, every day it was everyone was just gushing about Josh McRoberts because. Right. He passes the ball, and you know what NBA players love? They love the ball in their hands. And so he, he, he's going to be their favorite teammate because he's going to put them in great positions. And, uh, and the connection he, he showed, at least with Gerald Green the other night, like that seemed pretty fun. Like I think people will just really enjoy watching him play. And uh, he was joining a broken team last year. He committed to sign with a team that had LeBron. LeBron leaves, and that team was just low on energy. I mean, despite what everybody says, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, Zach, but... That team was just not. It was a bro, it was a sh- broken team in shambles, and now this team seems to kind of have gotten their feet under them, and at least trying to have more fun and have more of an identity. And we talk about the the lineups. I think that McRoberts Bosch front line is going to be extremely exciting. As 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 proud and as excited we are for Hassan Whiteside, having McRoberts come in and Bosch slide over to the five. That's going to be an extremely fun lineup, and that could be their best lineup without Whiteside, just because of the way that that team can kind of move across the court and get up and go. Yeah, I'm with you, and it's just the passing will be great, right? Like that's kind of the thing about Whiteside is that he's a he's a great rebounder, but he doesn't get the ball out as soon as he rebounds. You know, like he grabs a defensive rebound, and it's very slow to get the ball to a guard, and that's not going to fit in, um, you know, with their emphasis on pace this year. And, and you, you know, when you have Goran on the on the floor. If you can get a re- get a defensive rebound and get him the ball, like within three seconds, you may have a score. And it's just like he's just that kind of guy. Wade can be that kind of guy. And so I think you know whatever their best lineup is, it's going to include Chris Bosh, it's going to include Goran Dragic, and it's going to include Josh McRoberts because um, those guys do fit well together. And and, and you know there are going to be issues with spacing the floor, and you know having Bosh and McRoberts together, like those are two big men that can space the floor, and that makes things weird for for the opposition in terms of trying to figure out how you're going to defend that. Um, and that can cause a lot of problems just from a scouting standpoint, from a game planning standpoint, and then execution. Like I think opponents will really struggle with that combination. Does it come to a point where they possibly start giving Dwayne Wade the Tony Allen treatment? If that's a lineup, say like Bosch, McRoberts, Wade, Dang, and Dragic. Maybe, but here's the weird thing about like Dwayne Wade is, you know, you get into the whole like floor spacing thing and there's this, like idea of like gravity that follows shooters, right? And how they like suck defenders towards them. Right. Wade is actually really good at that, despite the fact that he's historically a bad three point shooter, because he's so good at cutting and he's so good at like once he catches a pass, finding the lane to on how to drive, even if you were playing off him to you know hope he would take a jumper. Um, I don't think he'll get that treatment just because I think there's still that threat, unless he's just you know pulls his hamstring again or the knee starts bothering him and he just becomes a shell of his former self completely. I think that's the only way that that ends up happening where he starts getting that treatment. Uh, I'm curious, how do you, how do you find that Koran Dragic has acclimated to the heat culture or, you know, how's he fitting in? Obviously, you know, it was a weird season last year, but I think, you know, between him re-signing with the team and then his brother being traded, you know, you, you hear reports that he was, you know, he agreed to it that he realized it was in the best interest of his brother to get some playing time elsewhere, but now he's back and he sees his team is fully healthy. Have you seen anything in training camp that might, you know, differ from that? Or do you think that he's finally a member of the Heat team and he's, he's all in as far as this Heat team moving forward? Yeah, I think he's all in. I mean, I think that, 
you know, he's he's so, he's turned into such a special player. Um, this is always a fun fact I like to bring up. Uh, where I was like, he was the best guard finishing around the rim, and sure. I always get, I always get. Well, what about Kyrie Irving? Well, what about Russell Westbrook? Like, no, he was the best. Like, and he was the best by a wide margin because he's so, his body control is so good. He's so good at getting in front of the the defender, and then he's just got great touch. And that those combinations, like, he's just a brilliant finisher around the rim. And I think the fact that he can do that in kind of a kind of a way that they used to need Dwayne Wade to do that. Um, the fact that he can stretch the floor a little bit, the fact that he's going to push the ball and create mismatches by by getting the pace going. Um, he's a solid defender. He's a guy who doesn't need to take all the shots. Like he just all those all those boxes on like what the Miami Heat want their guys to be. He just ticks every single one of them. And I don't think like I think he probably wanted to play with his brother. I think that's a you know. But I don't think it's like this crazy. Markeith Marcus Morris thing where like they get offended once they get separated for more than eight minutes like I don't think that was a thing and he's even he talked about either on media day or during training camp the early parts of training camp where he said like um you know I recognize it's you know my brother gets to play now and and it's a better situation I bet he wished his brother was in the NBA but he's playing I think in Russia now um and he's going to be a a fairly important part of whatever team he's on and you know he wants to Gorn wants to play an important role whatever team he's on I think Zorn wants to play an important role in whatever team he's on if it's not in the same league like I think they're adult enough to to not freak out about it you know going to the comments section some Heat fans are upset that he only had two points is that a concern to you for in that first preseason game no because he ran the pick and roll like yeah perfectly with with Chris Bosh and it's just kind of a feeling out thing like all right what do we have we what it's worked in practice what are we gonna um work on and you know in games and stuff and I just like I never look at production with preseason stuff I just look at decision making and to me you know maybe I need to watch it again but to me it looked like he was making the correct decisions and um and I thought he played I thought he played well and like you know yeah you'd like him to come out and oh I'm gonna drop 20 points and you know, 25 minutes and, you know, you, no one can stop me. But I don't think that – I just never think that's really important for guys uh, that are that have been in the league as long as, as he has or other players have. I mean, you can, you can argue that maybe he's not necessarily worth the money that Miami threw at him and everything else. But at the same time, he, I mean, you look at what, what Pat Riley traded for in order to acquire him and – you know, a lot of people have criticized the way that the, that, that move went down. That you know, the Rileys mortgaged their future yet again. But they probably don't understand the way that Heat have always built their teams historically. They've always you know traded away draft picks. They just don't care. I guess outside of Miami, the draft pick has such a high premium. But in Miami, that's never been the case. What are your thoughts on 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 Riley's moves historically, and, and spe- you know specifically about Dragic? Did he mortgage away the future, or is he building the team right now? in order to, to win in the East because it's a realistic option that they can win the East. No, I think it's, you know, a situation where, like, if you're going to give away draft picks like that, you have to make sure you're good so that the value of them isn't, you know, immense going the other way, right? So if they're as good as they want to be, which is, I don't know, like, let's just say 50 wins, um, that should get them a top three, four seed in the East, which means they're somewhere in, like, the 22 to 25 pick range. Um, you can still get great value for guys like that. I think maybe the best example is like, oh, the Bulls got Jimmy Butler at thirty, right. and so like you can, if you get a guy like that for nine hundred to nine hundred thousand to a million dollars a year, um, that's incredible value for you. But Pat Riley 
for better or worse, has never cared about the draft all that much, unless it's just a slam dunk pick like Dwayne Wade or Justice Winslow falls in their lap. Um, and, you know, I don't know, like, I think as long as you have the right perspective on how you build your team and you leverage your your strengths, and, and Pat Riley seems to do that for the most part, like, I think you can get away with it. You know, we've caught... We've gotten so freaked out about teams rebuilding and oh, you got to get as many draft picks as possible. Well, if you're not using those draft picks properly, what's the um, point? I mean, yeah, what's the point? Like, I think if you can turn them into tangible, uh, you know, assets and players that that know how to play. Like, you know, do you want the 24th pick in the draft or do you want Goran Dragic on your team? Like, <laughs> I'll take Goran Dragic. And, and like, I understand if you want the draft pick just in case things go badly and. And then you, you know, I don't know, you end up with Ben Simmons in a year or whatever. But, um, but I just like the odds of that happening are so much lower than the odds of Goran Dragic being really good for you. And he, you know, two years ago he was an All NBA third team guard. Um, maybe that's not something he can attain again. But I think he can come pretty damn close. And so I, you know, I'd take Goran. And and once the salary cap jumps, like. I don't know. I'd be more worried about what they're going to pay Dwayne Wade than what they're going to pay Goran Dragic over the life of this contract because um, with a salary jump, it kind of becomes a steal in two years. I kind of look at the Heat where they're everybody used to say, oh, it just works out for the Lakers. It just kind of seems to work out for the Heat, whether it's Justice Winslow falling to them they just they, or Hassan Whiteside being Hassan Whiteside and having the season he did and being able to just find players to fit into their needs. It kind of seems like when you just have a well-ran organization with a guy like Pat Riley at the top, people with foresight and a strategy and direction and a plan, it tends to work out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the I, like everyone for years was talking about market this and market that. Like, oh, the Lakers are so good because they're in L.A. Like, yeah, that's part of it. But they also had Dr. Jerry Buss selling superstars on, look, this is why you should trust us. And it worked because you could trust him as a leader uh, you've seen now as they've gone into other buses that that's not necessarily the case. And so they, they can't get a meeting with LeBron James or they can't convince Carmelo Anthony to come sign with them or they can't convince Dwight Howard to stay. And, you know, the Heat aren't necessarily in that position. They're not in a gigantic market, um, but they're in a market that players like. And so that's, a you know, something that they've been able to kind of leverage their way. And I just think that, to me, the ownership – and the way that an organization is run is way more important than market. We see that with the Spurs. We see that with the with the Thunder for the most part. Like we see that with the Heat, even though technically they're a smaller market than the Minnesota Timberwolves. You know, like I think. Um, and then you look at the flip side of that. Like the Knicks are a mess, even though they're the arguably the most attractive market in terms of being a star. The Lakers are now a mess. The Clippers were a mess for decades. Like I just give me the ownership and the and the leadership over the market. I think players have proven that that's the case as well. My argument against that, too, is look at the other teams in Miami. The Miami Dolphins are a shit team. Yeah. <laughs> the Miami Marlins can't do anything right. It's it's not, it's more than just being in Miami. You need the right ownership. Yeah, the Dolphins could pay Ndamukong Sue 100-something million dollars in guaranteed money or whatever it is, but they're going after Ndamukong Sue when the Heat are going after guys like Goran Dragic, Chris Bosh, people that will make a difference and... Uh, put right coaches in place and have that good organization from the top down. So, Yeah, and I think you look at it too, like the decision Chris Bosh had to stay with the Miami Heat after LeBron left, like that's not just because they gave him five years, $118 million. Like he could have gotten that other places or something, you know, comparable. Like there was a trust there and there's a trust because of the organization. And it doesn't mean that they're going to build a title contender around him and maybe 
they never win another title, but there's a trust there with how the organization is run and, and especially with the players that they've had in, the players who want to play there. Um, and I think that that probably wins out more often than not. What are your thoughts on Eric Spolstra going into the season? There's He's never won a playoff series um, without LeBron James. That's just a statistic. But is that something that concerns you? Is that or what, what are your general thoughts on Eric Spolstra as a coach? That doesn't concern me because I've just, like, what – what playoff series was he supposed to win without LeBron James? Like when were they ever like hands down the better team? Like I just, I don't, I don't look at, like I think the context of that matters way more. Mm-hmm. I think Spolster is brilliant. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I think that he, he can be a little bland. That's by design. Like I think in, you know, there are the Spoisms and everything. And, uh, and I think he, you know, is vague intentionally at times, but for the most part, like, they're prepared. They know what they want to do. Um, you know, maybe he doesn't handle, you know, curveballs due to injury that well. I I think he did a pretty pretty damn good job last year, considering they were you know trying to put Michael Beasley at the five at times and and that was the whatever his name, Bill, yeah, Bill or Henry season. Walker, whatever whatever we're calling him, like I whatever <laughs> you know, putting him on the court when he wasn't really in the league. Uh, you know, I think Spolstra is able to mostly maximize the talent he's given and, and come up with a really good game plan. And uh, if they don't win, it's not because of Eric Spolstra. It's because of other factors. Do you have a favorite Spoism that you've seen up close and personal? Um, I, well, what really floored me was when someone asked him about three point, I think Ira Winderman asked him about three point shooting on media day. And uh, he was like rambling through a, through an answer. And then eventually said like, you don't want to leave our shooters open. And it's like, well, right. You're NBA players. Like that was kind of a weird way to, to say, Oh, we don't really have any three point shooting, but we're hoping we can think of something. Um, and also uh, he said that Birdman was, in the well, he kind of stumbled through this as well because I think he caught himself halfway through it. But he said he ended up saying that Birdman was in the best shape he's come into a training camp with the Heat in his career. It's like it's been tr- two training camps. Like that's not necessarily the best the best way to sell that. But I I do like the way he kind of uh, he sells things by just making it confusing. That's a, a good segue there. So what do you what do you what do you see from this bench coming through? I mean, obviously we talked about McRoberts. But we're also curious about how guys like Amara Stoudemire and Gerald Green, they, they seem on, on the surface to provide a good value for this team, even though they're probably pretty limited at this point in their careers, although maybe you can make the argument that Gerald Green was never more than a one-dimensional player. But, you know, what do you, what do you see from this bench? You know, Justice Winslow, does he have a, 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 you know, a specific position there? Mario Chalmers is kind of battling for a position. There are so many questions about this bench, and I don't think from the outsider's perspective, I don't think a lot of people understand how this is all going to work together. And, you know, McRoberts might be a big part of that, but, you know, other than that, how do you see it all coming together? And if you do see it come together. Yeah, I mean, the bench is going to be tricky. Like, I think there's talent there, and I think there's depth. Um, but I think they're going to be a disaster defensively, even with McRoberts in there. Uh, I think McRoberts probably gets staggered into playing more with the starters than he does with the second unit when, you know, as the season progresses. Um, and so I just think, like, you know, you don't really want to play Amari more than 12 to 15 minutes a game because he just defensively can't do it. Uh, Gerald Green has never been a good defender. I don't buy that they're going to make him a good defender. Uh, you know, I don't know. I've always been a Mario Chalmers guy, but I don't know what to think of him at this point. Team Chalmers, uh, just there you go. This is a Mario yeah, Chalmers yeah, supporting yeah. podcast. Yeah, but yeah, no, I think we're the three guys outside of the Chalmers family who uh, who are who are in on him. But I don't know what to expect with him. Um, I think Winslow. You just want to see him 
continue to build throughout his rookie season. I don't know that you can expect consistent production out of him, but you just want to see that activity. Uh, and then, I don't know, like I guess Birdman's somewhere in the mix at some point. Uh, I think the key for them is just, all right, if you're not going to be able to defend, and I, I just don't think they have enough defenders in that second unit to do it, you have to be potent offensively. And I think they can do that. Um, as long as they get everyone still playing within the system. And I think that as long as you are not a negative as a bench, you don't have to be a plus. And I think as long as they can do that, as long as they can give guys adequate rest throughout the season, um, I think it'll be fine. I don't think it'll ever be great, but I think it's good enough. They only shot 16 three-pointers against Charlotte. Is that That's something that concerns me, is that maybe they're not shooting enough, and it was something that concerned me last year. Is that is that a way that you can win in today's NBA? You got to be really good defensively mm-hmm. um, in order to do it. Like there are some teams that don't really shoot threes. I mean, Memphis is the first one that comes to mind, but they're always great defensively. Um, I don't know that I, I don't know that Miami is going to be consistent defensively uh, enough to survive that. So they have to get creative. Maybe that's where um, you know maybe they live at the free throw line because they create all this all these mismatches, and so you can make up for the extra point there uh, that you're missing out by taking threes. Um, and, and have an efficient offense. But, uh, yeah, like the, if they're only going to take, you know, between 15 and 23s a game, that's just that's not enough unless you're, you know, hitting half of them. And I don't think they're going to hit half of them. Um, so they've got to find ways to manufacture points or manufacture taking away points from the opponent. Um, and I don't know, maybe they make a trade at some point and, and acquire a shooter that, that kind of fixes everything. Uh, but, yeah, like you it's – just, it's just math at this point, right? Like, I mean, you see it – Often, um, you know, talking about the the Timberwolves early last season, there were people with you know around the team that were like, "We know we're not shooting threes, and so that means like if the other team hits a three, you have to score in your next two possessions to, in order to make up for it." Right. Um, yeah, that's that's just a that's just basic math that's gonna you know come back to bite teams who don't shoot threes in the ass at times, and and the Heat have to try to find a way to avoid that as much as possible. So obviously they have weaknesses, but overall. How do you think they fit into the Eastern Conference standings? I mean, barring any injury, you look at, you know, Chicago's going to be dealing with some injury early on. Cleveland, obviously, is going to have some issues. But where do you think they fit into that top, you know, four or five teams in the Eastern Conference? Yeah, I mean, their schedule's pretty soft early on, so I think they'll come out to a, a good start as long as they're healthy. And then once you get, I think, like, maybe January is really tough for them. So as long as they can survive that, I think they finish somewhere in that two to four range. Um, even if they finish fifth, like, I think the East is improve enough to where that's not a that's not a disaster um because you can still take that first round against the four seed and and be in a good position against you know most likely the cavaliers to to challenge them um but i don't know like i still have concerns about how Whiteside fits into everything um so i think to me you know talk about the can the bench be a defensive unit enough to to matter? Can they shoot enough threes as a team to to be lethal? Like to me, the white side question is is more pressing for them because that means that moving forward they have to make a big decision with him and with how the contracts are structured with the yeah. rest of the team. You're walking on dangerous ground there when it comes to white side because I, mean, I know he fans got mad at me this summer for suggesting like maybe you package him at some point and trade him <laughs> <Yeah>. and. <laughs> Would not, would not go over well, but I think like, man, I don't know. Like he's individually, he he puts up production, right? right? But he still has immaturity issues, and some people don't want to hear that. But that's just what you hear around the league, and what's we, it's what you see. Like you saw it last season, it can be just, oh well, he'll learn from that. Yeah, some guys do, but some guys don't. And 
I don't think you can hold it against him in terms of he was a good rim protector, but he didn't impact the defense last year. Well, you also have to look at what he, you know, who he was playing with, especially the second half of the season. Like he was out there with some pretty bad lineups because of all the injuries. So you can't hold that against him, but at the same time, you can't just say, "Oh, he's a rim protector; they're going to be good defensively with him on the floor." I don't know that. I don't know that that's true. And so until we kind of get a better um, sample of what that's going to look like, until we see him on the court with the starters and see if he can be that anchor defensively, uh, I don't. You know, like you can you can. Have some blind faith in it if you want to, but I I just got to see it before I before I'm completely in on it. So those are my questions with him that that kind of leave me wondering: Is this the second best team in the East, or are they just really good? Well, I mean, the blind faith is exactly right because I mean there are people out there commenting on articles we write saying that you know even the suggestion that they might trade away Whiteside or that Riley would try to uh, you know sign a free agent by you know a guy by the name of Kevin Durant instead of Hassan Whiteside. That's ludicrous. Like they would rather have Whiteside on their team <laughs> than Kevin you know freaking Durant, and that's just yeah, incredible. That's, that's crazy. Like I mean, <laughs> maybe like I guess there's some youth movement there in a way, but uh, you know you give me you could give me Kevin Durant and the three of us, and I'd take that over <laughs> to make sure we kept Hassan Whiteside in town. Like I don't know that was. Uh, yeah, I don't, th- and that's the thing. Like, I don't think Hassan Whiteside's bad. I'm just right. not sold that he's the guy, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's there's nothing damning about that. It's just you, you know, you gotta you gotta see a consistent level of production and team impact. We saw good production last year. I don't know that we saw team impact, and that's understandable. But it's also, you know, you gotta see it. We've yeah. talked about it before that you know maybe the the adoration for Whiteside is the fact that during the Big Three era. There was so much, you know, such a glaring hole at the center position, you know, aside from when Chris Bosch eventually stepped up. But I mean, he provides that rim protection, that rebounding that was missing. And then you look at it, you know, the foundation of the team when it really came along in '95 with Alonzo Mourning and then the yeah. Shaquille O'Neal era. Having a center kind of reminds them and takes them back to that that those salad days of the Heat culture, you know. Yeah, like I get it. Nobody wants to go back to Dexter Pittman. Like I'm, I'm oh, in on wait, that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Nobody wants Joel Anthony, Dexter Pittman, you know, starting there, but. You know, this is also a new era of basketball where that big guy isn't essential for success. And the Heat proved that over the last couple of years. And Absolutely. and that's, you know, that doesn't mean it doesn't work because there are plenty of teams where it does work. It just means, like, you have options. And so that guy doesn't become someone that you have to pencil in as your max player of the future because that there are some real complications in making sure that happens. It'll be interesting to see which lineup is better, the white side Bosch one, which everybody's excited to see. Or the Bosch McRoberts one, and my thing with Whiteside is that he's everybody kind of says he's a rim protector, but it seems like he's more energized off of like dunking on offense in order to kind of get him going on both ends of the court. And last year it was like the Whiteside show because there was nothing else going on. This year he's got the, the ball's going to be swinging around. He's probably not going to get as many touches as he was handed over um, last season. So it's going to be you know the questions of his maturity, seeing if he can if he can keep impacting the game without the ball because he's going to have to if he's going to be playable over somebody like McRoberts or more more specifically that McRoberts Bosch front line if he's going to be playable over that for 25 plus minutes a game yeah and there's some real like pressure for him right there's a ton of money on the line if he has a good season like I get that like I uh, you know I, I certainly wouldn't handle that well at 25 or whatever however old he is like I I think that there, you know, he's going to have to find a way to balance like the idea of if I have a great season that proves that I deserve this gigantic payday that's coming, um, or you know, can he buy into the idea of like 
okay, maybe individually I take a step back, but as a team we work really well together. I'm a part of the biggest, you know, the best lineup on the on the court throughout the entire season and the playoffs, and and that shows that I'm ready to get paid as well. And so I get that whole reservation for him. And you know, like I don't want to just crap on Whiteside the whole time because he's like he's a good story and he's I think he's I think he's going to be good for the most part. But there was a comment um, on media day where. He said that he was. I think he said he was talking to Lonzo Mourning and said, you know, kind of came to the conclusion he wants to be Defensive Player of the Year. And someone asked him, "How do you, you know, accomplish becoming the Defensive Player of the Year?" And he basically said, "Like, uh, I know you guys really like that steal and fast break dunk I had last year. So I think I want to like get more steals in the pat, you know, play the lanes, get more steals, and and you know, get you guys more of those dunks." And I'm thinking like. So you your idea to be the defensive player of the year is to gamble in the passing lanes, like. And granted, like it, he could have just been having fun with the question, and he could have, you know, not realized what he was saying. He may not even believe that. Like that could have just been something he said. I say stuff all the time that it gets back to me, and I'm like, I said that. That's really dumb. Like I don't even even believe that. That happens with plenty of people. There are probably things on this podcast. I'm gonna go back and be like, I can't believe I said that. That was really dumb. But uh, but they, you know, you think like, all right, well. A big man usually wins Defensive Player of the Year by being one of the best defensive anchors in the league. Uh, you're not an anchor if you're constantly playing passing lanes. That's just not like defense is not is not the goal. Of defense is not to just go get fast break dumps. Like that's not how that works. So I don't know. There's some I, like under like I don't even know if it's maturity or just like experience questions with him that should come because he really hasn't played that much. All right, thanks for joining us, Zach. We got one more question with for you before we uh, wrap this up, um, and it's the most important question we've asked so far. Between sure. Chris Anderson, Josh McRoberts, and Justice Winslow, who has the best hair? Ooh. Um, all right, I'm not going to give it to a rookie. Winslow doesn't get best <laughs> hair uh, because he's a rookie, and I just think that that goes against basketball culture. So now is it the, you know, the main ponytail combination of McRoberts, or is it... Uh, whatever Birdman's going has going on, Birdman like added head tattoos to himself, and no. I think that makes the haircut really <laughs> pop. And so I'm going Birdman. Okay, we can respect that. You have reasons. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Zach. Really appreciate it, David. Good work as always. And thanks to everybody listening. You can subscribe to the Heat Check on iTunes and SoundCloud, and get the RSS feed on FeedBurner. See you next time. Cause I got a really big team, and they need some really big rings. They need some really nice things. Better be coming with no strings. Better be coming with no strings. We need some really nice things. We need some really big rings. I got a really big team. I got a really big team. They need some really big rings. They need some really nice. Things better be coming with no strings. Better be coming with no strings. We need some really nice things. We need some really big.